0: Southern Foodways Alliance work wouldn't be possible without generous donors. Today we thank Maker's Mark, a family-owned distillery in Loretto, Kentucky, that still rotates barrels by hand and dips each bottle of bourbon in their signature red wax. It's the perfect bourbon for sipping on your porch in the cool of the evening. We're also grateful to longtime friends Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned foundry in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. From Camp Dutch Ovens to cast-iron skillets and grill pans, Lodge makes the cookware that you need for your socially distanced dinner parties and camping vacations. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy.
1: Gravy.
2: Gravy. Gravy. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South.
0: Candace Taylor is a photographer, documentarian, and the author of Overground Railroad, the Green Book, and the Roots of Black Travel in America. She is also the curator and content specialist for an exhibition developed for the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition
2: Service. We got to know Candace a few years back when she presented at a symposium, and we're really happy to have her as a part of this year's symposium. She began researching the Green Book in 2013, and she cataloged nearly 10,000 Green Book listings, scattered over 4,000 Green Book sites in 48 states, and photographed over 170 Green Book properties. In other words, she did her homework.
0: These sites, nearly all now in decay, offer physical evidence of racial discrimination. And the stories she tells offer opportunities to re-examine segregation, black migration, and the rise of the black
2: leisure class. For our purposes this year, they also suggest questions to ask about our future as Southerners, as Americans. Here comes Candace Taylor in conversation with Melissa Hall.
0: I am delighted to have with me as our guest, um, Candacy Taylor. Um, she is the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Happy to be here. In reading your book, uh, the thing that I was struck most by was the deeply personal nature Of your relationship to this material through your stepfather. And I wonder if you would be willing to share a little bit of how that relationship informed this project.
1: Yes. uh, You know, my stepfather, Ron, it was kind of an accident how he ended up in the book, actually. Um, When I was first set out to write the book, I did not plan on writing about Ron. Um, (laughs) But I had been, I did a fellowship at Harvard. And after I left, you know, I I had all the, I'd done a fellowship at the Schomburg, because they have the largest number of green books. Um, And then I went to Harvard and did a lot of the scholarly research. And so when I left Harvard, I went on the road and did the field research. Uh, And I was on the road for many, many months. And I been researching this project since 2013, and I was writing it in 2018. So it was a long time of a lot of uh, research. But I, after being on the road for so long and seeing these communities, because Green Book sites were traditionally in Black neighborhoods, um, about 80% of them. And after seeing these communities in various stages of, um, poverty. I just couldn't start with, you know, this is a historical guide. I had to bring in the contemporary references. And while I was on the road, I spent many, many, many hours on the phone with my stepdad, Ron. And before, I'd known Ron since I was 12, um, but he never told me stories about growing up in the South. He grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, dark-skinned black man, and uh, even though he loved to talk, he never talked about that. He never told stories about the racism that he encountered. And so I'd gotten very close to Ron when I was on the road, and he would tell me all these stories that I would be reading about in the archives. And I'd say, oh, did this really happen? And almost always he would have a version of it happening to him or his family. My stepdad, Ron, died the week I started writing the book. And I was uh-huh. so devastated because I just felt like I finally was getting to know him in this intimate way. And we were so close. Um, I just couldn't do anything but write his stories. The first week I was writing the book and I only had eight months to turn the book in. So I was nervous. I called my agent and I said, oh, my God, all I can do is write about Ron because I'm so devastated. Um, and I know I should be writing the book. And I said, but I think I'm going to start the book out with a story about Ron in the backseat at the age of seven with his parents, which is I, how I opened the introduction. And she said, just keep going. Um, don't worry about it. And so by the time I had just written all the stories that he had been telling me, um, I realized that there were, it, it became a narrative arc in the book and there were touchstones in almost every chapter where I could, you know, bring Ron's voice. in. so it was I guess it was fate. I guess that's the way it was meant to be, but that's not how I set out to do it. And then ironically, of course, people like yourself say, this is the thing that hits them, um, the most, you know, intimately. And it really humanizes the book, I think in a way that makes it, um, more popular and, and more, um, and more supportive, uh, all different kinds of people can relate and want to know more about Ron. So thank you for opening up with that because he's, And, you know, since he passed, it's like it is an homage to him.
0: At the Southern Foodways Alliance, we talk about how our documentary work sort of sings the unsung. And I thought a lot about that phrase um, as I was considering your past work and your research, um, because that's that seems to be the place um, where where you live and research and write and with counter histories with by the horns um, and uh, certainly now with this book, telling stories about people and places that tend to get lost. Um, So what, what, what do you think it is that drew you to this kind of work?
1: Oh, well, I, I've been an artist all my life, really. Um, so I, and I've traveled, uh, throughout the United States extensively for about the last 30 years. I've always, um, been driven to be on the road and taking the side streets and not taking the freeways and really seeing yeah. how Americans live. Um, so that always, I think, perked my interest in terms of what I saw in the national media versus the communities that I kept encountering. Plus, I was in grad school. Um, my graduate degree is in visual criticism, which was a first of its kind of the visual and critical studies program. So, when I went to grad school, I really wanted to study the concepts and ideas about why why ideas are powerful and why they resonate with us. So I didn't want to be a gallery artist. I, you know, I wanted to do media art. Um, Because I thought I really, what's the point in not having a a wide audience to really share these ideas? So visual criticism was critical in liberating me from being just a painter. So my first project, Counterculture, was out of, uh, I studied these diner waitresses who were 50 and older because I was waitressing to get through grad school. And I just thought, how in the world do these women who were two and three times my age do this work? how do they work twice as many, you know, many hours and serve twice as many tables and I'm exhausted. Right. Um, so that was what led me. It was usually those questions of me having in my, you know, just how does this work? When I did the green book project, it was literally, I'd been commissioned to write a book on route 66. Um, I, it was a travel guide. I'd never done a travel guide before and it was a lot of work. And, um, I was kind of kicking myself for doing it because it wasn't enough money to even really do the job. But I was stuck in it because I had signed a contract. And I thought, well, okay, but if half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns, which were all white towns, they were all white on purpose, and you couldn't be black and be in the town after 6 p.m., how in the world did black people travel Route 66 Right. In the 50s. How did you know, this was supposedly the heyday and, the you know, get your kicks on Route 66 <laughs> days. I was like, well, that clearly couldn't have been the case if you were black. Right. And, I, and me being a black woman who had traveled about I've traveled about a half a million miles throughout this country over the last 25 years or so. It was that simple question that led me to the Green Book.
0: When you look for sort of popular or contemporary descriptions of the Green Book, people tend to head in a direction of it was the AAA guide for uh, black motorists in America. And it was, but it's much more than that. And it's much more complicated than that. And so I I would love it if you would uh, share with our listeners what it was.
1: Yeah, The Green Book was a travel guide. It was published for black people during the Jim Crow era. So it was published from 1936 to 1967. Um is when it ceased publication. And it really like you said was much more than just a travel guide. Um it started by the name of a man named Victor Green. He was in Harlem. He was driving his wife back and forth to um Richmond, Virginia for home. Uh, regularly and realized that, you know, it wasn't safe. Um, and his he had a friend who was Jewish who would go up north to the Catskills and use a guide that was a kosher guide for Jewish folks. And he thought, wow, that's really interesting because we could use something like that. Um, although it was beyond food, it was really more about um, safety. And even in Harlem at that time in 1935, when he was creating the Green Book, Harlem was still very segregated. Half the places on 125th Street, black people weren't allowed to go into, um, or had to sit in particular areas of you know of the theaters. So Victor Green was solving his own problem essentially. Um, the first Green Book was based out of Harlem. It grew very quickly because there was such a need for it, and he was a brilliant man who knew how to market a great idea, um, and so. By 1938, it was in every state east of the Mississippi River. So through his networks, through the postal office workers, letter carriers, because he was a postal worker. He was he belonged to the union. um, All these other black postal workers in the neighborhoods that they served had all these black businesses. Um, And they said, you know, this is a something you should consider advertising in. And they did. And it was a win win because. There were so many, as I said before, sundown towns throughout the country, not just on Route 66. There were thousands of them, um, mostly in the Midwest and the northern and western parts of the country. Um, You know, for instance, the state of Illinois had over 400 sundown towns, and the state of Mississippi had 13. Mm -hmm. So the idea, again, that the South was this kind of, you know, we've always demonized the South for being so overt, I guess, about their racism. But the problem with the North and the West and the Midwest was that they just had these covert operations. So it made it even more difficult to understand where you should or shouldn't be as a Black motorist. Um, So the Green Book was the perfect tool to at least get you to the communities where there were Black-owned businesses, where Black people lived and played and worked. You know, it, It literally saved lives. So it was critical. And you can see in the earlier editions, they don't just have like a triple A guide, gas food, right, lodging. Though or tourist places, there were it was everything you could ever imagine that you might need on the road. There were banks in the Green Book, there were funeral homes, there were sanitariums, there were doctors, there were drugstores and nightlife and liquor stores and fun things too. But it was really, an it was almost like a yellow pages of black businesses um, to support all those places in society where black people have been shut out of.
0: Yellow pages with no phone numbers. That was my favorite detail.
1: Right. I mean, that's so <laughs> yeah. funny. There are some yeah. phone numbers in the Green Book, but most, but some of them don't even have addresses. Right. So I've been scouting these places and it's been hilarious where they just have a P.O. box, I guess. You know, or you just show up and, you know, to the tourist home and hope that, you know, they had a room or it. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy how different, um, you know, we, we travel today. I was really
0: struck and, and forgive my irreverence here, um, here in in uh, this part of the South. It's very common, particularly as you head east to see signs that say Sea Rock City. Um, and that's a, you know, and that's an old school kind of, uh, uh, tourist attraction slash trap, um, around, uh, Chattanooga and those signs still exist. And I, I kept thinking as I dug deeper and deeper into your book, the sign that I began to sort of visualize in my head as, uh, Uh, I I dealt with the subject matter of your book was really one that said, see structural racism because there is no part of this story that can be separated from that reality of, you know, 19th and 20th century America. And I want to, I want you to talk a little bit if you're willing about the extent to which you know, that was a frame when you started or the extent to which it's just a frame that cannot be ignored once you start telling the story of these places that were and, you know, why they existed and then that they exist no more, both of which are tied back to that structural racism frame.
1: Uh, Yeah, if I understand your question correctly, I mean, basically my Take on that is that uh, you know because I I featured the in mm-hmm. Missouri the Ozarks were very right dangerous for Black folks to travel through and Springfield Missouri which is actually Route sixty six um, birthplace um, you know there was a uh, cavern the fantastic caverns that was run by the Ku clan Klan at the time and it was um, they held their cross burnings in the cave it was a drive through cave it was this kitschy Thing and like mm-hmm. you know, Rock City, it was you would see all these signs like, Oh, you know, drive right. through a cave, and it was really supposed to be fun and exciting and and novel. And um, how would you know as a black family that it's also where the KKK is? It's still around, but it's not run by the Ku Klux Klan anymore. But I think the, the bottom line for me is that you cannot live in this country and not reengage with that history it was how we were built it is what it's made of it's the fabric and dna of who we are black white otherwise i mean that is that's the reality so anything whether it was a tourist attraction whether it was redlining right. whether you know there's government policies whether there it, it it's in everything and i think the bottom line and hopefully what my book the goal of writing the book was was to help people see that you cannot live in America and not look through a racial lens. And the fact that we've had so few opportunities as black folks to re engage with this history, to understand this history. I didn't even, I learned so much from my stepfather in my 40s. And I had known this man most of my life. And the stories he told me about the Ku Klux Klan running his cousin out of town and they never saw him again and things like that. I mean, I would read in the books, but I didn't realize had happened to my own family, so even within the black community, we haven't truly interrogated this this reality that we're living in. I think we rely on the past to tell stories that we think we don't need to. some people don't want to think about that anymore. some people are you know focus on it a little too much and can't move forward. I get that there's complications, but what we need to do today is see. America for what it is, and understand how we can at least be truthful in the narrative and move forward. I was really struck um,
0: the um, the sociologist Franklin Frazier, who was commissioned to write the write a report about the, uh, causes of the 1935 riots in Harlem. Um, the, uh, the causes were injustices of discrimination in employment, aggressions of the police and racial segregation. And in this moment to realize that that, that same conclusion could be the conclusion to Anyone looking at the events of the summer, um, it weighs on a person. I would imagine that for Black Americans, it has to be deeply frustrating.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, because there were riots every, there was the 1943, right? There were 1960, I mean, there's been riots every 20, 30 years for the same reason. (laughs) I think that's the point you know, that you're making, which is, it's even more frustrating, obviously, to black folks because we're like, well, yeah, we keep seeing this cycle over and over and over again. Um, And why would you assume it wouldn't come around again? Because we haven't fixed the problem. We barely admitted that we even have (laughs) this problem. So that's how you can't fix a problem that you don't either understand or fully see. And it is crazy thinking it's been hundreds of years that we have played this this game but that's why my book was written in a very strategic way to show that progress has never been linear about every 20 30 years that we do the same thing we even call it the same thing and yet somehow you know we don't remember it in the same way or because of nostalgia we've painted the past differently But it was really a challenge to incorporate all these layers of history, of contemporary issues around racism. um, And then the narrative arc, obviously, of, you know, Ron and my story about how I came to discover this. Um, You know, it was it was a very difficult book to write. As I confess to you, um, I am and have been my whole
0: life um, an avid reader but I'm a person who grew up in a town without a book, bookstore. And so e-readers, I was an early adopter of the e-reader and the possibility of never being without the next book. And honestly, these days, the two things, the two kinds of books that I do not buy in the electronic version are cookbooks and art books. I would say your book sits on the edge of being an art book in that the layers of your photographs, these absolutely stunning um, historical photographs and paintings, and this very complex personal story. This is a beautiful book in its in its physical manifestation. And um, talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, thank you for asking about that. I don't get that question very often. And, um, and there's a lot of uh, work that went into that. So I remember going into Abrams and talking to my agent and saying, you know, I think we're going to have to let them down easy because I just had a meeting with this other editor at this other major and I thought, I, I'm just, I'm in love with her and I want to do it with her. And, and, um, and I said, I don't want an art book. And um, Abrams does art books. And uh, and I said, because I don't want this, the material is too serious to make it look too pretty. And I want people to take this work seriously. So when I sat down with Abrams, they presented me with like a 17 page proposal of their vision for the book. And I wasn't expecting that. And they... And I had very clear terms from that first meeting. I said, this cannot have, it can't be, a. Tr- it has to be this trim size. <laughs> it has to be on certain type of paper. So it's not too precious. It has to be nicely designed, but not over-designed. And they agreed to all of that. And they said, we want to do a children's book, which I just finished the editorial process for that last, on Monday. I fought for those full bleeds of the green book pages yes. so that it feels like you're in the green book. Um, And again, you can't have that experience digitally. You really do have to hold it in your hands to do that. And um, it's just, you know, I was it was a crapshoot because, like you said, there's all these different kinds of photographs. There's my photos that are modern, but I tried to make them not look so modern. There's the Technicolor linen postcards. There's the black and white archival photographs. I thought this could look really messy. And it is one of the most beautiful books I've seen. I would love it if you would talk a little bit about
0: what's next and, and for what's next, in addition to the children's book, um, talk about the exhibit and, uh, and your work with the Smithsonian and what the exhibit will be like, because this is, this will be a way for people to interact with the green book and green book material and, um, in person and near them and all of those great things that exhibits offer.
1: I started talks with the Smithsonian in like 2016, four years later. Um, We actually have an exhibition that'll be traveling the U.S. I'm a curator and content specialist for the exhibition. It will travel for three years. Um, It's about a 3,500 square foot exhibit. And the first place it will open in October of this year, um, it will be at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. It's a very elegantly designed exhibit with beautiful, huge um, archival images and storytelling around um, around the Green Book, but also about Black social mobility and, like you said, how fabulous <laughs> we were in spite of this crazy, you know, the, the situation that we had to to endure um in this country. So yeah, so I'm I'm proud that uh that is happening. It is work that um you
0: have uh done extraordinary extraordinarily well and with an absolute, I don't know, love for your subject and um and at the same time Mm -hmm. um uh scorn for the situation that uh, created the subject, and it's. it's
2: mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much for being willing to
1: talk about it. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a labor of love and um, obsession. I think in some ways, but it's when things like what's happening in our culture, um, especially around these uh, shootings, uh, that's what keeps me going you know, that's what keeps me, uh, even when I'm tired, I keep working because it's a, we're living in an important time. Um, and I think we have to all find our way, whatever it is we can contribute. Everybody does have something of their own. That's unique to contribute to, uh, to participate in this history and, uh, really push for change. So I'm thankful. And I've always, I love, you know, Southern foodways Alliance and, and gravy. And I'm so excited to, um, To be here.
2: Matt Pearl produced this episode of Gravy and other people helped. Who helped?
0: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is
2: Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lasseter serves as our publisher. Visit us at SouthernFoodways.org. To watch films, peruse our event bibliographies, or listen to this podcast or another podcast. While you're there, we'd love it if you would become a member or make a donation because your dollars, your support, fund our work and help us stir up more gravy.
0: I'm Melissa Hall.
2: I'm John T. Edge.
0: Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear.